in reflection now, 17 years later, and I've been thinking about this for a while, I really wish they would have had the courage to tell me the truth, in which is that you can live a normal, healthy existence, but it's going to be hard work. You're going to have to completely overhaul your lifestyle and the way you look at nutrition and all of your habits and routines and behaviors. But once you nail that, then you can have a perfectly normal life. That's Jay Hawley, and you're listening to The Interested Podcast. I'm your host, Donna Edda. Interested is a result of my curiosity to explore more on our collective wellness wisdom. And that goes from physical to cognitive to emotional health to spirituality. This podcast is my attempt to bring nourishing conversations to help you live a higher quality, more fulfilling life. My guest this week is trainer, educator, and role model. Despite living with type 1 diabetes since he was a teen, Jay Holly is living proof that you can stay strong, fit, and healthy despite a chronic health condition. What's more is he has found that a carnivore diet can help moderate his body's glucose level, which in turn helps him live a more balanced and fulfilled life. In this episode, we talk about how to stabilize blood glucose level through nutrition, Jay shares his nasty story of the die-off phase of a carnivore diet, the importance of gut health, mental health, and where he gets his meat. Reaching out to Jay to record this conversation was especially important to me, as my friend's teenage son was diagnosed with the same condition only last summer. It is my hope that everyone living with diabetes can draw inspiration from Jay's story. He shows that optimal fitness can be achieved no matter what your circumstances so without further ado, here is Jay Hawley and I. First of all, can you tell us what is diabetes and what's the difference in a nutshell between type 1 and type 2? In a nutshell, uh, type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition, which means that your autoimmune system is on the fritz. As you know, imagine like you're a computer program that's crashed. The, the result of that is it attacks or one of the organs that you have that is responsible for producing the hormone insulin. Insulin um, is essentially how we metabolize our nutrients, in particular glucose. I don't produce insulin. The pancreas, right? Yes. Whereas a type 2 diabetic um, largely is they do produce insulin for the majority of their type 2 diabetes, um, but it's that this insulin is ineffective at doing its job role based on a couple of conditions we can pinpoint inside the body. So one is my pancreas is not producing any, and one is what my pancreas is producing doesn't work. Can you share your story on how you were diagnosed? Pretensis diabetes runs in my family, type 1 diabetes, because you often hear, uh, you know, type 2 diabetes runs in my family these days, but type 1 diabetes runs in my family, which means a few of us, majority of us, we haven't all been tested, are a gene carrier for type 1 diabetes. My younger brother, um, who is three and a half years younger than me, was diagnosed at the age of seven. I was diagnosed at the age of 14, so um, we were all sitting around uh, my grandmother's living room one day, and she was like, let's all do um, a blood test together. You know, she was like, you know, let's be nice to Kieran and let's all just measure our blood test. Cunning she was because we all did our blood tests and then hers was fine, his was fine. Oh, let's just have a look at yours. 
I was a little resistant, a little hesitant because I knew something wasn't right and she knew something wasn't right. And this is why we were playing this game. Anyway, when I tested my blood glucose, it was off the scale, so high, like my blood glucose is through the roof. So at that point, uh, she phones my dad and then we make our way down to the local hospital where we were at. I get diagnosed with type 1 diabetes there and then um, after a, a test or two. The only other thing that can cause you to have super high blood glucose was uh, some rare forms of STDs, but they were like at 14 years old, it's, it's probably unlikely. I left with two different medications and it was like, good luck um, with your diabetes journey. We don't have to give you too much information because your family's already set up to take care of this. And there we go. So my grandmother's second partner, second husband, was a type 1 diabetic as well. So my, my father's father. So that's the side of the family that it runs on. So out of us, me and my brother are the ones who have uh, type 1 diabetes. When you said you kind of knew something was not right, what was it? I was having all of the symptoms that we observed in my little brother years ago. So it was like an unquenchable thirst because um, I, because I wasn't able to metabolize glucose, um, the way that your body deals with that is it it tries to push it through your digestive system so you can you can pass it as fluid, and I was just thirsty all the time and then using the bathroom all the time it was just like just like straight through me because I'm I'm trying to clear all this glucose I was tired I was losing lots of weight those are the big three and you know I had headaches a lot because of the the, the high circulating glucose. What was your lowest weight? At the age of 14, I dropped approximately nearly 10 kilos. I forget because I was in UK measurements. So it was, I was remember at my highest, I was eight stone. And I think if we roughly use the integer of like six kilos, so to be uh, 48-ish, I wonder if we can round it, and then all of a sudden to be 38 or, or even 40 uh, kilograms again, it was significant weight drop for someone of that age, especially during the development and, and, and growing. So, Can you expand on why is it important to maintain a stable glucose level? Yeah, absolutely. So depending on which you use the American scale or the rest of the world scale, uh, you somewhere have to be between about 3.5 to 4 as a, as a number integer, all the way up to about 7. Um, so this is um, millimoles per liter. So units of glucose per liter of blood as, as, a, as a score. So you need to be in this kind of range. If you're too low under this, um, you don't have enough glucose circulating in your bloodstream to fuel brain activity. Uh, and therefore you get even for me, and this is, and this is, and this is the scary thing that, you know, your, your doctor's trying scare the life out of you with is that if your blood sugar drops anywhere below 2.8 you can incur what i like to little put in his little cuts little tiny um, microscopic brain damage the negatives of being too high as we see with type 2 diabetes whereas um, it damages all of your blood vessels arteries eyes feet circulation um, so that's more of a slower issue long-term issue whereas as the whereas if you were to go too low for too long, you don't have very, you can slip into a coma and, and be gone. So when they're giving you diabetes advice, the rule is we'd rather you be a little bit higher than a little bit lower because it's the risk is still massively huge to, to the body, but you're still gonna be around tomorrow so we can deal with it. 
you know, I was having a conversation with um, my friend recently and I was like, I've got such a, I'm so, they were like, you're so particular about time. And I'm like, I am particular about time because I like to be organized. I like to be productive as a human being anyway. But when, when you know you've come close to death or you, you come close to death and every, uh, uh, regularly, you kind of have more of appreciation for it, right? Like, I, I mean, like I'm very self-auditing in how I spend my, my time essentially. So. so when you were diagnosed, what did the doctors tell you and what was your treatment plan? And they would have said a million things and I'm sure it was all beautiful advice. But the one thing that burnt into my mind um, was the sentiment or the statement, it's okay, you can have a normal life. You can eat what other normal people eat. I, I forget what I was going through as a 14-year-old child, but I know I was, I've always been quite rebellious as a human being anyway. So I was like, I'm, you know, like I'm going to do this my own way or, or whatever the case may be. In reflection now, 17 years later, and I've been thinking about this for a while, I really wish they would have had the courage to tell me the truth, um, in which is that you can live a normal, healthy existence, but it's going to be hard work. You're going to have to completely overhaul your lifestyle and the way you look at nutrition and all of your habits and routines and behaviors. But once you nail that, then you can have a perfectly normal life. Can you please share what you have tried in the past 17 years, what hasn't worked and what's working for you? So I tried ignoring it during my university years. That doesn't work very well for you, right? You know, I, my feedback from people at the time was, you have great days and you have awful days. There was no consistency in my athletic output, the way I looked, because, um, I was a reactive diabetic. I would chase and correct. So it would be like, I would inject, consume something with rough accuracy and then know that I would need to correct that later. You know, so I was just chasing stable levels all the time as opposed to proactively setting everything up for stable glucose. And I went through a, a difficult period, personal period a year ago where I did the same thing. I fell back into... I, I don't care. I can sort it out later. Because, but, you know, this is coming from someone with 17 years experience who can do it, but it still was not a good situation for me to be in. Why did you fall back into it a year ago? I just separated with my partner who I'd been with for 10 years. So I was just like, oh, do you know what? I don't even care. I'm just going to, I'm just going to drink this or eat this. Or, you know, it was like, I would think it was like a pseudo coping mechanism. And I was traveling a lot. Being a reactive diabetic it's not a good thing. Um, ignoring it doesn't mean it's not there. It's just, you're going to pay the price for it eventually. And I was, I was trying to make it at one point into the, uh, the Olympic, uh, British Taekwondo team. Um, and then I'd have weight fluctuations, performance fluctuations. Like I, I'd be there some days on fire. Then, then the next day I wouldn't be on fire. And it was just down to not knowing enough about nutrition. And if I could go back, I'm glad my life took the path that it's taken, first and foremost. But if I could go back and give this knowledge that I have now to my teenage self, I wouldn't, maybe I'd make it, maybe I wouldn't have made it, but diabetes wouldn't be the reason why I didn't. That was the, the early years. And then I started cutting weight for mixed martial arts bouts and jujitsu bouts, because um, that was what I was kind of doing in my early 20s, just 
competing in these kind of sports. So as, as a fallout from not making it into the Olympics, Taekwondo. The next thing is, is uh, I'm having to start to look at my macronutrients um, because I'm reading stuff online and I'm talking to these guys in the gym about how I can cut lots of weight. Um, so I was doing all sorts of things like just protein shakes or just drinking green smoothies and, and, and starving myself and restricted and counting my calories. Um, and then the one thing that I learned from that early period was if you have an eating routine, which I put myself into for the first time, which was I'm going to eat these four meals at these four times these days and inject this much insulin. It's that's the foundation of stable blood glucose, because for the first time I was like, I know how many I know how much medication this meal costs. I know how much this one costs. I know how much this one costs. And then then, OK, I have three meals that I can eat and remain healthy for. And then ever since then, it's just been a progression of of looking into maximizing my essential nutrients, looking into maximizing um, whatever I wanted to experiment with nutritionally, which I was deeming to be healthy. Um, it went from paleo to low, like it went to then I tried vegetarian or meatless days and I tried a bit of veganism. Um, and at that point, and, and, and this is me not here to, um, to bag on veganism, but I got really sick again. I've been running around with this. Oh, well, I've had type one diabetes. So chances are I'm not going to get anything else, you know, so there's the reckless abandon, you know, but no, I got really sick. And, uh, it got to the point where after I was eating, I was getting stabbing pains in my intestines and I was just like holding myself on the sofa one day. I had a whole host of other symptoms, but at that point it got bad enough to be like, okay, you need to go do something about this. How long were you a vegan for when these symptoms came up? Not not long time actually, but I'd always included a large amount of fruit and vegetables in my diet. You know, like eight to ten servings a day or whatever, trying to trying to chase whatever the the aspect was. I would come in, and it would be lean chicken, nuts, seeds, fruit starches and greens you know a lot of a lot of my diet was based around trying to at the time follow that super paleo healthy lifestyle i did a series of tests the first test that was interesting to me was oh, okay you're nutrient deficient across the board you have like 13 nutrient deficiencies and i was like that's interesting because when people say that they're anal i can i can understand them but like for me for the longest time i'm super regimented okay maybe i need to go double down even harder on my lifestyle and, and go super healthy and then um i had a i was trying to supplement my way out of it eat even more fruits and vegetables and then you know like you you get all this propaganda online about how meat's bad for you so i was like okay i'll do meatless days as well and then it got worse and i got worse and i got worse and then we ended up doing fully comprehensive stool testing what had happened is and this leads back to why it's nutrient deficient is I had so much bacterial overgrowth in my intestines that my large intestine and then my small intestine had become so overpopulated that they'd actually become then infected. So I had this level of infection in my intestines, which was stopping me from absorbing nutrients. The overconsumption of roughage and fibers and, and all of these fermentable carbohydrates proliferates is the food for bacteria in your large intestine 
And these all proliferated to the point where there were so many of them that they, they, they started to travel up my digestive system to where they wreaked havoc, essentially. Um, so this is when my next phase of my type, my type 1 diabetes dieting came in, which was I tried a low FODMAP diet, which was um, a meat diet plus all the non-toxic, non-fermentable fruits and vegetables. I had a lot of success on that diet. It was a great uh, win, but I, while my health markers were getting better, I was still underweight. My performance wasn't doing that well and a bunch of other things. So then someone passed me an ebook. And a bunch of other things. What are the other things? Just so people can... <laughs> Just like skimming over it. So like, my, like okay, actually, this is good stuff to dive into. Like, I, I, I feel like when I, when I do these, I'm, I'm, I'm layering in too much detail. But no, this is, this is it. So, so while my health markers were improving, um, I was still pale. I still didn't have great cardio. I couldn't breathe through my nose very well because I had a block of a histamine. I had absolutely zero libido and loads of dandruff. I had a discolored tongue and I had inconsistent stool, to name, a, to name a few. But this was definitely a fallout from the infection as well. While I'm doing this research, because I went in for a second set of stool tests and it got better, but not really got better. So what, what we decided to do was go, I, I read this ebook about someone who had the same condition as me, not diabetes, but same gut conditions as me and they went carnivore for 30 days or 60 days I forget how long they went carnivore for but they did it. I think it was 30 days bam all gone completely cleared up and it makes sense because um, without people trying to push you know a, a complete carnivore lifestyle if you're having any sort of fermentation issues or large intestinal issues or bacterial issues in your intestine we know that they proliferate from undigested food um, particularly carbs and sugars or, or things that we can't break down and absorb because they travel further on to our large intestine where we, we eliminate them. And that's where the proliferation happens. So with meat being essentially 99% digestible and absorbable, it really starves off all of that bacteria from proliferating. Is it something you want to do for the rest of your life? Could be, could not be. But if you are having any IBS type issues, it's a very, very, very good documented and successful reset in order to starve off all of these bacteria. It's currently actually World Carnivore Month where a bunch of people get on it for 30 days a year to do that kind of reset. And the most famous person to currently do it is Joe Rogan, who, who um, does it every, Jan every January. Um, he says he's, he's majoritively, he uses a lot of meat now in his diet consistently, um, but he's strict carnivore for the month of January. And he's documented his progress. And I want to clarify, like the carnivore diet is really no veggies. It's not a steak and salad on the side. No, no, yeah. The carnivore diet in the simplest form, when you look at the one cut, there's like, there's classifications of it, but everyone, the easiest one is just to do one cut, which is you just take one cut of meat, you eat that two to three times a day for 30 days, and you add some salt and you drink some water. All right, so then after 30 days, what happened? So I tried this two years ago, January. To use the word life-changing would be fine to use because it's really changed my entire life. But it was like the, the day one, I could instantly breathe through my nose again. And the reason why this was a big issue for me is because I'm working so hard on my sleep data and trying to access my parasympathetic nervous system and and get into all this diaphragm breathing that I was playing with mouth taping 
and I'd never had a successful mouth taping episode because I would always pull it off and like, because my nose would be blocked up and I'd be starving myself of oxygen. Um, luckily you just use like medical tape that just pops off really easy. Um, and then I was like, this was my first time that I could go through the whole night breathing through my nose. My resting heart rate dropped, my heart rate variability, which is a stress tolerance score went up, the higher it is, the better. Um, it's like an inverse to heart rate. Uh, deep sleep went up, REM sleep went up, uh, energy went up. Uh, I cannot believe the turnaround that you get in libido. It's, it's like going back to being 16 again. It's just like night and day. Um, That's how I should be feeling all the time. This, yeah, this is how, like, what have, what have I been missing? And to the point where, oh, we can talk about it, honestly, my, my ex-fiance was just like, again? <laughs> like, really? <laughs> and, um, you know, that was never the dynamic, you know? So that was very interesting for me as a, a health and fitness professional to look at these physical symptoms. Performance got better. Um, I was underweight before, and then I just started just growing, growing, growing lean tissue. So... I think I put about 10 kilos of weight on, you know, not all of it's going to be muscle mass, but I'd never been so big and lean at that weight before. So that was a, a major turnaround. So you used to chase to balance the blood glucose level, right? Yeah. And so now with the new diet, how does it fit into it? Like, What is it like now? So actually I had to go and explore different types of medication. Because traditionally, um, I, I use the word big pharma, but big pharma uh, promotes, um, I, I have them call them colors. So anyone who has, who's friends with me knows it's, it's orange, blue, and green. So my green medication is one that I put in the background, um, which lasts 24 hours and just slowly like manages top-down blood glucose slowly pulls a little bit of glucose out 24 hours a day. Uh, the orange one, which is the, the, the comprehensive one on the market, that's the, sorry, the most widely used medication is as a two-hour life cycle, essentially. So it's, it, the, the goal of this medication is to be in and then to be no longer working two hours after you've put it into your system. So when you track the digestion speed of of food that's very correlated to carbohydrate metabolism and it allows you to fix your blood glucose levels quickly so i still use that one for correction dosages but what i was finding was that when i was looking at my formulas for how much medication should i put in per unit of food i was crashing so low uh, in the beginning i would have to consume honey to bring my glucose back up. But then a little bit later on, they were going up again. So I was like, okay, so why, why, you know, why is this not working? Oh, of course, this makes perfect sense that protein has a slower digestion rate than carbohydrate. So I need to use a five-hour medication, not a two-hour medication. But this one's not available to people. They don't promote it. You can only get it if you have a medical condition um, where you have a slow digestion speed you have a in this situation so being blessed to be working and living in hong kong i can just go to the pharmacy and buy it myself so i was like i need this medication so i started writing my own medication protocols with the the guide of people online and some of the doctors that have done it around the world so reading what they've done and then experimenting on myself so now i switch to what i call blue which is protein insulin 
And now what this has done, because it comes into my system for five hours, is that I know that I can't eat again within those five-hour windows, otherwise my medication might overlap. Sometimes I can play around with it. So proactively, what I worked out now for myself is that every 60 grams of red meat equals one unit. Um, but off the blue or off which? Off blue. Okay. Yeah. Whereas every eight grams, eight to 10, depending on um, the, the, the composition of the, the carbohydrate, makes up one unit of orange. That is really helpful information. How long did it take you to work that out for yourself? Basically, which is not really widely published, there's a, there's a doctor in the States called Bernstein, and he wrote a book in detail about it all. When I got diabetes, she'd be like, hey, here's this book. You know, it's, it's done. We, we, we know how to do it. But it's never pushed because he is a massive advocate for a very low carbohydrate diet. So, he, you know, his story in, in a nutshell was, he was an engineer. He worked out how to crack his own type 1 diabetes. No one would listen to him because he's an engineer. So he went and trained as a medical doctor to then submit his research. And, and, then he get, and then he has his own clinic and he helps diabetics from all around the world. I think he's based in New York. So I'm reading his book and he, he, he's talking about these rough guidelines. So I went and then did self-experimentation. And I found a few more things a little bit deeper. Uh, just because I think that you can get more rich data when you actually strip things back to doing just one item of food at a time. So I've worked out that roughly I only absorb 15 to 17 grams of protein per hour. So I worked out that I can't inject more than six or seven units of medication because that's too much in my system for the amount of speed that my body will digest the protein through. So it's not, a, I can't go, okay, 600 grams of meat, 10 units of medication. I can go, you can do 60 grams to one unit of medication up until as long as you respect the 15 to 20 grams of digestion speed per hour, which would allows me then now to go, or oh, okay, so I, this, is, this amount of medication is going to be in my system for five hours. If I was to, and I've done this in the past, crush like two kilos of steak in a sitting with my boys or whatever, I don't advise it, but I know that in five hours time, I'm going to need to do another injection without taking food as that protein starts to digest into my system. How do you work out the digestion rate? I would put in a spreadsheet how much protein I ate in a sitting. And then I would look at my continuous glucose monitor and put five units in. And I'd go, okay, six is pushing me low. So the most I can consume is five. And then I would look at it and go, okay, so how much after the five hours is my blood glucose rising? Okay, so my blood glucose is rising this much. I'm going to need to use three correction units. Three correction units roughly equals this much. So I can ballpark that this is the amount that I'm digesting per hour on average. Okay, I just want to go back. I've got a couple of questions. Is it worthwhile naming those medications? Is it helpful to the audience, like the blue and the orange? Yeah, yeah. So the orange is the, the most famous one, and I can, I can grab them. I have them all with me. Um, so the, my, my green one, as you can see, the green, is uh, Traceba. I think that's how they pronounce it, Traceba, which is the, the latest basal insulin, which is your background medication. This one for carbohydrates is the most famous one on the market, Nova Rapid, uh, two-hour life goes in and out. One standard unit, they come in packs of five. But this one is my magic 
carnivore low carb one and dr bernstein writes about this medication a lot in his book but it's just it's because giving someone this strategy is too much to handle for the normal person like it's a lot for me to handle as someone who has 10 to 11 10 to 12 years of nutrition experience so when you have to write this kind of protocol up for as your friend's son it's like i don't even know what i didn't i don't even know what protein is so they basically just give you a very simple procedure to go just count carbs we're not even going to include protein just count carbs because that is the majority of people's diet and then inject x amount of medication per unit of carbohydrate very simple guidelines so the masses can follow and but this one humulin r which is human insulin which mimics human insulin um super cheap actually compared to the rest of them is available in most everywhere in the world um, you just have to have a good reason as to why you can do it carnivore and meat-based diet with orange but it just means multiple little daily medications um, as opposed to being able to hit it in one go what's the price difference between the blue and the orange is that like a double yeah yeah so the orange is about twice as expensive as the blue one what is the advantage of not putting in so many units of insulin insulin whether people tell you or not it doesn't ages you it's a, it's an anabolic hormone it 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 promotes growth storage and you look at some of these bodybuilders that are grossly abusing insulin um even though that's kind of gone out of fashion these days and and in PEDs in general anything that promotes anabolism um and you age so quickly um and also it's just so much easier to manage diabetes with less traffic on the road you know so for me like only having a quarter of the insulin i know that it little bits of changes up and down or there's there's nothing going to be a massive spike and a or a massive rise so i'm i'm playing with just these many marbles whereas if you're trying to play with these many marbles all of a sudden you, you drop one and you drop real big you drop real hard so all of my worst lows essentially come off the back of lows of medium low blood glucose is when I've put in too much medication quickly to overcorrect or or for something and the digestion speed hasn't been there and that's really quickly driven my glucose into the ground and then that's like emergency situation because I need to find sugar quickly to bring myself back up whereas if we're only playing with one unit or here or two units there my correction dosages now are generally like one maybe two fruit pastels or maybe like 10 grams of honey which for anyone who knows me reading this I one of my biggest problems as a type 1 diabetic is I overcorrect on honey sometimes so like I'll be a little bit low and I'll, I'll take a tablespoon of honey and I'll be like ah oh, that was too much and then it pushes my glucose up a little bit too high that that's my personal flaw is that I eat too much honey so I'm trying my best to stick as much as I can out to fruit tips because I know that 4 equals an increase of like 1.6 and 8 equals an increase of about 3.2 when we're looking at the level of my blood glucose I weighed it out and I did the experiment so I know the this much sugar raises my glucose by this much and is it the same for everyone or is it different for everybody in general there's going the human body is going to operate in a similar fashion so there will be a small variant in that some people are some people are of the opinion whether they need one unit of medication for 8 grams of carbohydrate some people one unit of medication for 12 but we're roughly in the same we're not in the one unit of medication for 100 units of carbohydrate right we're not in that kind of stratosphere so we're we're basically in the same 50% 
of eight, which is a low number either way. Would I be correct to say that for anyone with diabetes, type one or newly diagnosed, to investigate on how the food affects their body and actually learn more about protein, carbohydrates and how long it takes to digest? Absolutely. It's, 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 you know, not everyone wants to do a deep dive into nutrition. I love it, but it's going to improve the quality of your life. Outside of that, if you if you if you don't want to really dive into nutrition, because the more knowledge you have on nutrition, the more flexibility you can have. So the, the my advice to diabetics when they reach out to me is either just choose one meal that you can consume three times a day, or choose one day meal plan. So let's say you have breakfast, lunch, and dinner worked out. Don't change. Just keep that same meal plan every day at the same times to work out the medication requirements for that. So that once you're in above 85% in target for the day, if you're using a continuous glucose monitor or your blood glucose is stable in the morning and and at the night, stay with that. Don't deviate from that. And once you've nailed that down, then you can add in a second breakfast option or a second lunch option or a second evening meal option. Um, And then you can expand your food choices in, in that fashion. Whereas the more you learn about nutrition, for me, I know, okay, so, 270 grams of ribeye steak approximately with a cut i'm using is 53 grams of protein that's the same as eight eggs that's the same as this much here that's i can roughly ballpark it and then if there's like a little bit of a deviation so i found out that eggs do come with a little bit of carbohydrate in them inherently but enough for me to have to use half a unit of orange that's like fine tweaking for me so the more you learn about nutrition the more flexibility you can have when you come to decision making to food so in terms of priority of goals where would you put um reducing the insulin unit intake versus controlling just chasing the blood glucose level so the number one goal of diabetes is stable blood glucose so like whatever dietary approach allowed me to to maximize my nutrient nutrient intake and stabilize my blood glucose i would roll with it is the number one thing and then you can work on insulin dosages and timing and all those optimization things so the same for all human beings we need stable blood glucose adequate amino acids adequate essential fatty acids and in their most bioavailable form. And then outside of that, everything else takes care of itself. There's so many reasons why insulin would need to be elevated. It could be circulating inflammation, could be circulating stress hormone. There could be a, a multitude of factors. So, and all of these kind of have the same response, which is the first and foremost, you need to manage your blood glucose. Just by managing your blood glucose alone, you will have a reduction in medication because the more your blood sugar is up and down, you get insulin resistance and stress release hormone, which all contribute to how much medication you're going to need to use. If I'm super sleep deprived, I need to use more medication. It's just, it is what it is. Like even I on to, the same diet. Even the same diet. Like if I have a really poor night's sleep, I get a little spike of blood glucose in the morning because of a, a stress hormone response. If I'm having a really hard training session and I go through a really stressful training session, the physical stress, not mental, emotional stress, I'll need to do medication because the stress hormone is releasing blood glucose into my system. So, but these, these are all like niche examples. The first thing that you can do is eliminate as many variables as possible until you have that individual plan locked down. 
and then you can expand. And, and this is the same thing that I give to my body composition clients when I'm still training people. And even now when I'm advising my coaches is the fundamentals of all behavior change or all transformation or any, anything is, is clear black and white rules first until you've demonstrated success or have enough knowledge that you can then take a little bit more ownership and accountability of your own decision making. But set, set, set the rules of the game first until you learn to play the game. And then you can start to expand, right? What are some of those variables that people should remove? Um, keeping the same standardized meal plan is is the first thing that you should do. And it's like, oh no, um, I, but I, I like variety, in my li- and, and all of these and all of these things I run into. Like you know, I like variety. I don't think I could eat that. And this has been the biggest contrib- the conversation that I have before anyone's ever tried a meat based approach. The immediate response to me is. I like variety too much to do that. I couldn't do that. And then someone said to me the other day, um, even as early as last week, they said, oh yeah, but you eat grass-fed uh, Wagyu steak three times a day. I, th- I think ribeye steaks, I think I'd be okay with that. And I was like, ah, see, you know, you like the, the insane thing for me being on two things, one being on this carnivore diet and two, not being sick anymore and not being super stressed out about my blood glucose anymore is a combination of these three things i don't care if i didn't get to eat anymore to keep these three things in but i would because i know what it's like to have awful blood glucose i know what it's like to not enjoy eating your food and i know what it's like to be sick so just having hey you can just just eat this here and that's going to take care of everything for you i'm like okay i'm all all over it and it's not even to say that that has to be unappetizing you just need to have consistency until you've worked it out so it's it's not forever it's just for the next 30 days you got to eat the same meal plan every day okay so just find your favorite breakfast lunch and dinner and just repeat that until you've got the medication doses down yeah and then from there we can expand or tinker or change things so the, the two biggest things you need to do in the beginning is is keep your meals consistent and in regards to portion sizes, macronutrients, varieties, and timing. Can you break down timing? Because I think that's so important. I eat ideally in a perfect world at currently at 6 a.m., 11 a.m., 4 p.m. Um, that suits my schedule. That doesn't suit other people's schedules. I know when I was training clients and I, my training myself is all done in the AM. So my customer service and training ability is dictated on me having nutrients in the morning. So I preferred an early eating window than a late eating window. And without getting into intermittent fasting, um, you could have spread it out. I could have done 6, 12 and something later. I get blood sugar difficulties if I eat within five hours of my last meal because of overlapping your medication but when when you wake up in the morning you have uh, this thing called dawn phenomenon uh, dp which is your body to get up as part of your circadian rhythm releases a load of stress hormone in order to, to wake you up that's how we, we get up you know and then we have very high stress hormone until about lunchtime whereas with the with the inverse of getting sunlight as we evolved, um, we start to produce melatonin. Um, cortisol levels start to dip inversely with melatonin levels to help us fall asleep that night. So our body clock um, has its own regulatory function to medication. 
So in the morning, we're dealing with two issues. We have an increase in stress hormone. So I need to inject for the stress hormone. So I usually wake up and just do two units of orange with no food because I know I have, I just call them uh, DP units or stress hormone units or whatever, wake up units. So that happens to me around 6 a.m. every day. And while I'm doing this, I've gone to bed late, gone to bed early, whatever the case would be, I need to inject it about half five, six o'clock at the latest um, to make sure I'm on top of that. Otherwise, what I'll see is I'll wake up and my glucose will be elevated, but it won't have been elevated for long. It'll have just come up just because of the part of process of waking up. We have a, something interfering with you then there. And also in the morning, um, our body starts to absorb a little bit more insulin. Uh, our liver does it. It's just a, it's just a physiological process. So we have a couple of things that we're dealing with in the morning. Then at lunchtime, we don't have those things going on, but we have the digestion of meal one still potentially happening. And then as we get into the evening and we've, um, depending on how busy we've been that day, let's say we've done 10,000 steps, which creates uh, more uh, GLUT4 activation, which means that you're more receptive to absorbing glucose without the use of medication because of how physically active you've been today. You're dealing with another set of evening criteria. Even if I'm eating the same foods for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, they may require a different amount of medication or the absorption time might be different. So as a rough rule of thumb for me, I can keep the medication the same for all of them if I drop a little bit of something else and increase a little bit of something else for breakfast and drop a little bit for evening meal if I play with some other variables. But if I don't want to play with those other variables of like my basal insulin and stuff, then I have to adjust the medication requirement for the actual direct meal source itself. I want to go back. I know you said it, you don't want to go into it too much with fasting. I want to talk about that. Oh, no, I'm happy to talk about fasting. I was just saying that timing for a diabetic isn't about promoting fasting. When you fast, you essentially you don't have diabetes, right? And, and you know, in the best way I could possibly say that, because when I was fasting, I, I'm down to just like two units of medication a day because blood sugar doesn't go up or doesn't go down depending on how much circulate medication you have so i've done a good couple of fasts it's it's tricky because sometimes you'll get like random blood glucose spikes or somewhere or they'll go low and you have to really keep an eye on it it's not just i only have to inject when i'm eating you do have to keep an eye on it but what i've found is my blood sugar is much more stable on only two meals a day uh, even one meal a day but only two meals a day and then a, a large window of not not eating where i can be stable for but I, what I found is I can't get enough protein in during that time frame for my training requirements because I have an insane training volume. But if I was to ever decide to be a normal human being and not train relentlessly, I would definitely switch onto a two meal a day approach or even on rest days, like a one meal a day approach because blood glucose is just so much more stable when you all of those variables that I've just been talking about just are less frequent. There's a medical team in uh, Hungary called uh, Paleo Medicina Hungary, and they use the strictest form of a carnivore diet for medical therapy. I couldn't even do it myself. Like you know, what like what do you mean? How strict? Basically, it's stripped back to only a certain groups, a certain couple of foods. Most of them are organs, 
um, and you have to weigh all of your ratios of food essentially. So because it's a therapy diet and they want you to be eliminating or being in autophagy um, for some of the, the bad things that you have going on in your system, they do low, lower protein quite drastically. So you're, you're looking at like 50 to 70 grams of protein a day and the rest being animal fat. So it's basically like brains and beef fat or liver and beef fat or you know like it's just like i could do it but it's just not something that i would super love to enjoy but they published research on their website um and, and you can do a consult with them i i, I haven't done a dig a, a big dive into it but if you caught someone while they were just very early in their diabetes so you get diagnosed with diabetes type 1 once your blood glucose is super elevated um, but at that point, you still have pancreatic function. So you can have anywhere from half to 10%, 20%, 40% of your pancreatic cells still functioning, which is called the honeymoon phase. So it's where you, you put some medication in, so your, your pancreas goes, ah, relies a little, size a little bit, and then it can then produce medication. So there's a few diabetics around the world, and I'll get back to my paleomedicine and hungry story in a moment, who have been able to maintain some pancreatic function, which allows them to do rounding errors. So, you know, like while, while me, I don't have any pancreatic function left because they're all burnt out and died out. Whereas if you had even 10% function left, and let's say I, I, I was in the ballpark, my blood glucose should always be 4.5, right? Let's say it was 5.1, which is pretty close, but the, the remaining pancreatic function would just guide you to where it needs to be, yeah? Wow. If you were on my kind of lifestyle. Yeah. But what happens is people who, who keep up with the high-carb lifestyle and levels go up and down, they end up burning out their remaining pancreas cells, um, which, which happens. So one thing Dr. Bernstein talks about in his book is getting insulin in you as fast as possible and getting those stable blood glucose getting your body healed up so you can preserve as much pancreatic function as possible. What do you mean by burning the pancreas cells? So let's say I've only got 10% of my cells left. Yes. You, can, you, you can overuse them to the point where they, they don't work anymore. Like they're just, they're done. That's it. I'm out. Right. I've finished. Because your, your levels are, your blood glucose level should be like at the most like six. And then the whole pancreas has to round it down to... 4.5 for a normal functioning healthy person whereas you can get levels like when i got diagnosed my levels were above 33 they were off the chain like unrec like this like they just give up trying to measure you at that point it just says high on the meter um and i'm trying to get 10 percent of my pancreas to produce all this medication to bring me down so one of the the effects of long-term type 2 diabetes of really high prolonged blood glucose is that you end up getting type 1 diabetes from your pancreas cells burning off um, and you get double diabetes or you can get double diabetes from having type 1 diabetes and being obese to the point where your insulin, even the medication you inject doesn't work very well. So there's that for you. So back to my story for paleo medicine hungry, this, these people, they're healed, uh, put someone on a carnivore diet so that immediately calmed down their immune system and healed their gut. So to the point where is that this child wasn't diabetic anymore they it was reversed they'd lost the function that they'd lost during the autoimmune episode but as long as they stayed on this diet 
they never had to inject. How long did that last for? It's, it's the, the child's healed. But they can't help you outside of the first six months. So the honeymoon period is around six months? Essentially, yeah. Can last up to a year. It depends on your symptoms, right? So characteristically, they suggest that everyone with an autoimmune condition, and this is, this is a gross exaggeration, so I don't know exactly what the data is, but all stems, hypothetically, we, we, we don't have the evidence to, 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 to put it black and white, from poor gut health. It's, it's the gateway to putting something inside of you, bacterial or foodie or allergen-wise, which is the trigger for putting your immune system on the fritz. Rheumatoid arthritis, um, multiple sclerosis, type 1 diabetes, wherever your gene carrier for and your immune system goes on the, the fritz because of your poor gut health, you, you end up getting. And it triggers that. You, you, it triggers that in you. So the better we can look after our gut health, which is the main, the main things we're looking at is going to be dairy, gluten, soy, sugar as children, which is a staple of all of our diets, the more autoimmune conditions are going to be rife in the world. If someone chooses to try the carnivore diet, in the beginning stage, is there this horrible detox yes. effect? Yeah. Can you share? And, and because I've fallen off the wagon for a couple of weeks, twice, I've had to go through that three times. <laughs> but none of it was as bad as the first time. Um, the first time... I went carnivore uh, January 1st, two years ago. Life was wonderful. It was great. It was breathing. I felt great for about 11 days, maybe 12 days. And then the bacteria started to die off in my intestines. And the byproduct of bacteria dying off was this awful these awful things that they were leaking into my body in, in inflammatory mark uh, in, inflammatory, inflammatory I don't know if the word cytokine is the right thing uh, in, inflammatory particles we'll say we'll get into that in a second and also how much my body had to evacuate all those dead um, bacteria so Joe Rogan explains it eloquently calling it exploding pens but it really is you do have to walk around with a packet of wet wipes in your bag because you need to use the bathroom a lot. And this is just all of this trash coming out of you. And then my nose was streaming and then I had a headache and my jaw was hurting and my body was aching. And the theory, again, I'm, I'm going to openly say theory because we, we're not 100% sure, is that bacteria don't want to die. You know, they, they have such a quick turnaround that they can evolve so quickly they will do anything in their power to stop you doing what you're doing that's killing them, which is make the host feel awful. Yeah. So you, if it wasn't for the internet and reading about the die-off phase, I might have quit there and then. Right, you'll think something is wrong. Yeah, like, oh my God, I'm dying. But I, every time it goes through it, I was like, no, 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 no. Stick with it. The, it it's worth the wait. Trust me. Um, How long was the die-off phase? So I lasted for me about 10 days. But symptoms got better through that periodically. The next time I went off it was, I did this photo shoot um, about eight months into being a carnival. Got ridiculously lean, but it was, it was, and I talked about this previously, it was silly of me to do that because I went from a place of super low 
nutrient stores and nutrient deficiency all the way through losing body fat. So my body was like, what are you doing? Like, you're not putting enough food in me. Like, we're finally getting nutrients again and then you're starving me again. So the fallout from this was, I was so hungry after my photo shoot, hungrier than I've ever been before in my entire life. And it didn't get better until I started eating organs, right? I was just eating and eating and eating. I put on about... And so you were eating regular steaks. Yeah, yeah. I was eating good food. And you were still hungry. I was still hungry. So what I started to do then is I was making these organ burgers. I was, I was food processing liver, either lamb or beef mince and a little bit of bacon. And I have like grass-fed Wagyu ribeye steak in the fridge, which looks glorious. And all I could think about was these liver burgers. Like they were just living in my brain. Like I would be sitting in bed or sitting on the sofa and I'd be like, oh, they're in the fridge. And like, I got to stop making them because I would just clean them out. And it wasn't to that point that I really stopped getting just ravenous all the time because I was finally rebuilding my micronutrient stores. And then what happened to me was we came into like the Christmas period and I was like, okay, so I'd been strict carnivore now for 11 months beef and salt that's it and then obviously these organ burgers and a couple other things like the old little bit of honey to cook but largely i was like strict for 11 months we went to a couple of christmas party christmas gatherings and i was like oh okay what's what's one day gonna be you know because it is what it is i kind of like snapped at like this uh buffet and kind of just like ate a whole dessert one thing being a diabetic that's dumb you know, that's like super dumb. But because I know so much about like, oh, yeah, I can work this out. I can work this out. And then being carnivore, it's doubly as dumb because I felt horrific. I had to go home. I had to be sick. I could lie down. I was sweating. I was being like, the next day it was just like, I was living on the living in the bathroom. It was just, I just can't tolerate that stuff. So the, the downside of being a carnivore is your tolerance for poor food choices falls off and you know on the odd occasion i'll do 90 percent dark chocolate or something 100 percent dark chocolate but i still feel like oh there's a little stab in my stomach sometimes you know like and here's my one admission so when i do prolonged fasting i'm not sure to the accuracy of this but my coach at the time i, I was following this guy called joachim bartol and i still consult with him now he he's he used a carnivore diet to cure cancer he documented how fasting and carnivore diet shrunk the tumor. Anyway, he was just saying that when you prolong fast, you wash your coffee receptors. Um, so every time I do prolonged fasting, when I drink coffee, it hurts my stomach. But I just fight through it. I white knuckle it until I'm good again because life without caffeine is, is not worth it for me. So with the carnivore diets, there's definite downsides in regards to social acceptance and being sociable. So just for friends and family and everything now, um, it's okay because I can go to any restaurant they want to eat at and just eat steak and I'm okay with that, But other or, or eat any meat. But that makes other people feel awkward. Oh, why don't you try this? Or why don't you try this? Are you sure you don't eat this? Is that what you're eating? You know, like it makes them feel uncomfortable for me just living my, my, my life. The two fallouts from that is that I just spend time with people who accept it and know it. Or I'm happily just to go places to drink just sparkling water. So I went to a couple of months ago, I went to an event which was had a plant-based dinner. And I'm happy to go there, socialize and just drink sparkling water. It's not going to be for me, but I'm not going to 
to make a scene here or put any special requests or be that person that says, can I have this, but with all of these 45 different things removed from it, I'm, I'm good. I can just, I can just be me. Or if, if there's any meat here, I will eat that. But this becomes a little bit difficult when you're trying to meet someone for the first time or date someone, right? Because it's not so much about like my friends and family, I can just be like, take it or leave it. But it's a little bit diff more difficult on dates one to five, let's say. I would try to be accommodating a little bit. Okay, I'll drink a little bit with you or I'll, I'll try and work out my medication to accommodate um, something off plan once a week or something or twice a week, wherever the case may be. And I ended up with poor health, resenting myself and just not enjoying any of this. And, and so for me, with what I've been through and, and where I am today, uh, I've, I'm of the fundamental decision that if you want to hang out with me, unfortunately, fortunately, I'm willing to do whatever you want to do, but you just can't mess with my, can't mess with my food. That's it. You know, having diabetes and having where I, why I needed to be on the carnivore diet in the first place with my gut issues, but it's perfectly fine because it just creates space for someone to be on board with that eventually. Like I'm in no, I'm in no rush to do yeah. that. So and if you want a happier Jay, then that, that's right. If you, you want the best functioning version of myself, then you need to be on with the board on the program. And you, the girl that I'm currently dating is completely on board with my program. So it's it's a it's a blessing. But that can only happen by being in line with your own values and living your values, which is a whole other separate topic that we can go into. And then being open and communicating that as well, right? Yeah. You've mentioned a couple of times the continuous glucose monitor. I just assume that everyone with diabetes is using one. Is that true or not? No, I pay for mine because I can. Like, because fortunately I can. Like it's, but that's not the case for the majority of the world. So it's not a standard thing? It's not standard medication and it, it's, sometimes your insurance might cover it, sometimes part of... So if we take the UK, for example, a lot of people have now transitioned onto it as an offering, but it was very like a postcode lottery, we call it in the UK, depending on where you lived, whether that local region was offering it as part of their health service, for example. Is it expensive? So for me, it costs me... I'd say a month, about 1500 bucks for my CGM Hong Kong, a thousand to 1,500 Hong Kong dollars. So 150 British pounds ish. Most people don't have that disposable income for, for what they're going through. Right. And the, the couple of times where I've had a faulty one or it's, or I've ripped it out accidentally and they don't go back in and then, Oh, there's another, it's like me tearing up a 500 Hong Kong dollar note. And it's like, Oh no, painful. I'm blessed that I'm in a situation where I can do that. And I'm more than willing to make the investment but not everyone is in that situation. Um, and luckily now it's becoming more global, so more people are, are, are on it, but not everyone has a continuous glucose monitor. How beneficial is it to have one? It's so beneficial in regards to data, but it does allow you to chase diabetes. So I can go, okay, no, 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 no. and I can see where it's going so I can make adjustments on it, which is great data, but what I need to do is I need to go live the life that I would without having a continuous global monitor and then just use it to check if everything's going according to plan. Not go, oh, I've got a CGM in so I can make up for it later, which you know, I've done other times, you know, like I can, I can I, cause if I didn't have a CGM, I would be way stricter with my decision-making because I wouldn't know what was gonna happen. So I would be 
but now I know what's happening, I can be a little bit more liberal in my decision making. So we've talked about diet. Now I want to talk about movement and exercise. You're an athlete. You have you train really hard. And for those out there who are struggling with diabetes, how would you advise them on their exercise regime and and living with diabetes? I tell my clients this a lot that even without diabetes, that exercise isn't the cornerstone of your health and fitness plan. And they're like, oh, what? But you know, you're a personal trainer. How can you say that? I'm like, well, no, like sleep, sun, nutrition, and steps is basically what you need to live a health and life. See, but I would have never have gotten to any of those if I hadn't have been in exercise because exercise is my grounding. It's my cornerstone. It gives me a lot of great feelings and trying to get better at the exercise of choice is the reason why I dig into so many other facets of my life. Without exercise, I wouldn't have even wanted or cared about a lot of these other things. You know, so for me, now I can say I'm all about health and fitness, but when I put my hand on my heart and close my eyes, I'm ruthlessly after like training performance, you know? So I would say to everyone is, is that from a physiological point of view, um, as a species, we've been used to doing a lot of exercise. Um, our bodies work significantly better when we do do exercise. We have better cell functioning, cell signaling, all of these wonderful things that go on inside the body. Once you have enough exercise going on inside the body, lean muscle mass is, is, is so protective for future preservation. It's so good for insulin sensitivity. Um, training total body in general allows you to burn through so much more glycogen, you know, the storage form of, of glucose inside your body, um, which allows you to be much more receptive to medication in general. So there's so many wonderful facets to health and fitness. But I used to be of optimal, but then I was coaching my, my mum and I was coaching a a, couple, a good few years ago back and it was a realization about, you know, five, six years back to go, oh, okay, so you can't go from where you are to where I am because it's an unsurmountable jump. It's taken me 10 years to get to where I am and I'm chasing it. So for me, I'm not going to be able to, for me running, and it took me 10 years, I can't push you there next week. So she was like, okay, I'm going to decide to walk to work. I'm going to do Zumba and I'm going to stop eating carbohydrates at dinner. For example, I forget what the other thing was. And then she, that was enough to make her lose 10 pounds, whatever the case may be is. So I, my advice to this is just do something that you enjoy, that you want to go and do. It doesn't have to be what's optimal training. Just be active because there's so many inherent benefits and you get to compound that with if it's outdoors even better if there's a community even better if 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 anything you know so i didn't do all that much resistance training last year so i probably trained the lowest amount that i've trained in years maybe two good weightlifting sessions a week the majority of my time i just spent doing brazilian jiu-jitsu and wrestling because i like it that's what makes me happy. If I wanted to be a physique athlete, I would I would need to do significant amounts more than that. But I can stay in pretty good shape just doing twice a week. And I know you're like, oh yeah, but you do so much other exercise. I'm like, okay, I'm a bad example. But it, it depends on what 
drives people. So for, for health and fitness, my advice is two weightlifting sessions and two cardio sessions a week is, is going to be golden or three weights and, and one cardio. That way, if you're training four days a week, you train more days than you don't train, then you identify as active or an athlete by by default. So that's why this is such a big mental difference between training three days a week to four days a week, because now you're majoritively a trainer or someone who trains. So that's my advice, you know, do two hours, do your hour of cardio twice a week or sport or whatever the case may be, and then lift twice a week or three to one, wherever the case may be. Sure, if you want to do more than that, that's fine. If you want to do less than that, that's equally as fine. But that's general, my best recommendations for maximizing health and fitness and and all of these other wonderful things that you start to do once you identify as a healthy person, you know, and when it looks at behavioral changes, part of this is you go, what would what would a healthy person do in the situation? But then eventually that becomes, well, what would I do in the situation, you know, so. If we take it to the extreme and we're going to talk about optimization and maybe perhaps even a high performer who wants to be going to the Olympics, be competitive, do you, can you share a success story scenario of a person who have been able to manage diabetes, type 1 diabetes, with that level of performance? One of the uh, the first starting uh, international English rugby players has got type 1 diabetes. And there's a couple of Premier League football players, and I'll dig up their names, who have type 1 diabetes. So, you know, basically type 1 diabetes is... All you have to do is manually drive blood glucose versus automatically drive blood glucose. But if you're willing to do all of these these things that we've discussed, there's no reason why you can't become a professional athlete. Absolutely no reason. I read up on this um, marathon runner yeah. who was only taking two units of medication. He was yeah. so optimized. It's insane. So it's possible. Absolutely possible. You know, in even with the the insane amount of calories I was, I was, I was, I was been smashing and I can get down to 12 to 15 units of medication a day, you know? Um, and all those wonderful people in the paleo medicine of Hungary that are getting people down to like one to two units of medication a day. It's, it's, it's insane. So we we're basically told that, you know, you get diabetes, Hey, this is your medication for life. Go get on with it. But it's, it's, it's not the case. It's like looking at the why we got here and, and how. So, I always break down my goal setting for the year, month, you know, because sub goals into a health goal, a happiness goal, and a future preservation goal, which kind of gives me something to work on with diabetes, something to work on with my sport, and then something to work on with my career, you know, like three little targets. So my my goal set out for this year to get my my walking around body weight down about five kilos, more in line with where my body mass index should be. And people are like, oh yeah, but body mass index doesn't look at body composition and you're already very lean, why do you want to do that? Well, it's a good reference point for me anyway, because even with the extra weight, it's still, even if it's lean tissue, it's still gonna be a strain on my heart to carry that around. And it still means I've got to eat so much more food to maintain it. And when I was looking back at the data from last year, cause I, I did, I took a whole year's worth of data um, in an Excel spreadsheet from last year. How long did that take you? I, I would just basically write out, write out like five or six things every morning for a year and then put them into a table. When my body weight was lighter, my resting heart rate was lower 
and my recovery scores were higher even with the same everything else going on so i was like okay then even with me now i can do more and and the point that people bring up is that you find as you find as you are but then that's that can be used for any person in any place at any time is that are you comfortable knowing that you could be doing better and for for, for diabetics the the stakes are higher so i'm like okay yeah i i i give my i'm not beating myself up for for not doing it anymore it's not coming from a negative place but if i know that i can do better and have something that possibly i could share or work things out or, or try some stuff then i'm going to give it a go i want to ask about the happiness goals that you mentioned which leads to mental health we talked about it earlier on in our previous conversation that certain stigma that comes with type 1 diabetes there's a few chapters or a few things that we can look at with type 1 diabetes the first one was accepting it was was a, was a challenge for me i never so my first few employers i never talked about because i was it was shameful for me that i was a, there was a defect in me i wasn't perfect and i was a lot of type 1 diabetics don't share because of the same mentality and so that i found when i communicate to people is that they don't want to look vulnerable you know they don't want anything to be wrong people they don't want people to to fuss over it so i didn't want people to not give me a job because of, of i had type 1 diabetes and then you realize no way actually like even though you can call it like a disability or a condition or a hindrance or whatever you want whatever word you want to use if you achieve what you achieved with this then it's then that that shows strength on the contrast if someone said hey jay you've done your time as a diabetic it's time to not be a diabetic anymore yeah yeah i will take i will take that deal all the way to the bank with everything like with this year 2020 in particular there's been so much growth potential in my life from having type 1 diabetes that it has been a blessing but that is isn't a very long standing revelation in me um i've been quite mad at it for the longest time what are some of those um good things that happened because of your condition one is that i went from you know what i thought i was going to be going to banking my entire life and I, i i just even when i had those early days of starting mma and martial arts and competing and i realized i had that little itch for nutrition it it, it took me to this field i absolutely love helping people and working with people and i did that for the longest time i did about 8 to 9000 personal training sessions and now i primarily train personal trainers or we refer to them as coaches because we do so much more than just personal training at atp um to help coaches have careers um and we have you know about 25 coaches across the company you know building up to 30 eventually is that i can give you know as part of the company i can give my goal is to give 100 people a career so you can say this could have stemmed from having difficulties with my own performance and body composition and health as a child that i'm now able to give this back to people which is a wonderful feeling when you think about it You've mentioned Dr. Bernstein's book. Um anywhere else that you would send people with 
type 1 diabetes to get more information and knowledge? Yeah, so Dr. Bernstein's is really like the the Bible of it. Like it's it's next to my bed. Sometimes I just read random chapters, but I can recite most of it by now. But um, there's, there's, there's so many brilliant websites that'll give you information on what diabetes really is. Um, but it's all quite generic. And I don't mean to like say this in regards to they're not doing a good job, but like, you know, even like the JDRF or like any of the American Diabetes Associations are just going to give you non-suable advice. So stuff that's very cookie cutter, stuff that's like, hey, this is diabetes. And a part of having a good diabetes is, you know, making sure that they give you standard American nutrition advice. So what for me is that I, you know, like for me, I'm not interested in that. Okay. Yeah, I got diabetes and sure. There's your nutrition advice. Like that's, that's, that's great, but it's not for me. So for, for me in general is that talking to other successful diabetics is, is, is gold because, you know, you can really think about what strategies they have, you know? So everyone knows someone somewhere that's got type one diabetes, you know? Uh, and then that's, that's a wonderful thing to, to think and then also you know if you have any elite performers like you know any like you can you can google any of the athletes that do have type 1 diabetes like following these guys and following their stories is going to be like the best practice because they can't get to the top without practicing at best practice you know we work all these things out aside from that any of the textbooks on nutrition or physiology or or learning about proteins, carbs, fats, macronutrients, learning about the effects of exercise on the body, learning about resistance training, learning about the digestive system, learning about the, you know, the endocrine system, all of these systems inside the body are going to be so valuable in your decision-making process. So um, I'm not here saying, yeah, jump on this diabetic website in, in, in general, because most of the government run ones are, mm, you know, like five out of 10. <laughs> So I would, I would think about you as a human being. Okay, I'm a human being, so let me learn about human beings. Let me learn about ancestral dieting. Let me learn about proteins, carbs, fats, macronutrients, micronutrients. Let me follow in anyone else's footsteps who's already walked that walk for me, you know? And that's where the most value is in, in, in most things. And it's interesting that you mentioned gut health is so important to all of this. And most of the time it's a trigger to the disease. Absolutely. Is there a book that you would recommend that is focused on gut health? Oh, I, I read a fantastic book um, that changed my life um, called The Hypercarnivore Diet. Um, and he's not a strict carnivore. So this guy was a vegan for like 15 years and then transitioned to a hypercarnivore diet, which is an aggressive name, but basically just means um, carnivore diet plus seasonal fruits and vegetables that we would be able to get as hunter-gatherers. So really it should have been called the ancestral diet. Um, and in this book, it's it's a decent read, but it goes into, not detail on just food, it just goes into like everything in regards to like how we work, where we came from, like comparing our digestive tracts to that of other carnivores, other plant eaters, and, and all these these wonderful things. It's a really interesting read, um, and that changed my life forever. Like I just, I read that book back to back, like cover to cover, in about two days because it's like three hundred pages long, and 
two years ago in January, and I've been recommended to everyone since in regards to a book for nutrition. Um, Precision Nutrition website is very balanced and democratic view on um, on nutrition. So they'll give you a balanced argument as to things. It's a very good resource uh, for nutrition. Physiology is, is kind of proven now, so you can just get into any good physiology textbook and they'll teach you about, you know, what the heart does, what the stomach does, what you know, all, what all of these, these these things do, and and yeah, that that's it. So that hypercarnivore diet by Don Matez, I think that's the name who gathered the right, was was a wonderful read. Um, other things, you know, like anything to do with you know ancestral, I'll enjoy anyway. Like one of my favorite books of all times was Sapiens. I mean, there's nothing to do with diabetes, but it's 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 fascinating to know more about people who have walked the walk before us, right? Because I really do feel like there's a lot of value in case studying people. Absolutely. Where do you buy your meat? <laughs> Ooh, a few places. So if I'm inviting, if I'm advising anybody to go and start the carnivore diet, I would say the two websites that are great are going to be Grows Fresh. There are butchers in Appleage how they deliver. They have really good quality meat um, from Australia. Um, at a more affordable price, we're looking at tenderloin.com.hk. And these are grass-fed? Yes, you have the options for all of these things. So um, I'm going to get to the back to these two in a second. I'm blessed that one of my friends, who I shan't name, owns a restaurant, and his restaurant supplier um, delivers him cuts of beef in six to seven kilo blocks so i have to buy a minimum order of 14 kilos of beef which is no problem that's like two weeks food so i do that every other week and i, I carry i just farmers walk or carry the 14 kilos of beef home and then this is a, this is an inter interesting question so people say to me isn't it expensive to be on a meat-based diet and i'm like nah and they're like yeah but meat's expensive hey, when you eat out in a restaurant meat is expensive i'm not going to go to Henry's um, three times a day because I would be bankrupt by tomorrow. Basically, if you go and find a decent supplier, you can get grass-fed beef for anywhere between 200 to 300, but usually between 250 and 300 Hong Kong dollars a kilo, maybe up to 320. So if we go a kilo of food, of beef, is going to give you in excess of 2,000 calories. All of your protein requirements and macronutrient requirements. So at the very basis, if you cook it in its own fat, it costs you nothing. Or if you buy a little bit of duck fat or butter or whatever the case, a little bit. So you're looking at feeding yourself for a me for a day is 300 Hong Kong dollars. For most people, it won't be that much. They don't eat that much food, you know? When I went out and I took um, my friend for breakfast on Sunday morning, I had one meal for the two of us like is about 700 bucks right and that's just breakfast you know like if you go for dinner it's going to be 2800 you know 2000 3000 dollars whatever the case may be is and then it just becomes into perspective it's like if you're willing to make your own food which is easily done on a carnivore diet you just put a steak on for breakfast wait until you come home put another steak on for dinner it's not expensive at all in the, I, I actually save money because i don't buy organic fruits and vegetables anymore and if you want to substitute it in with eggs 
eggs are about in the same price range. You know, if you want to go even cheaper and buy chicken, sure. I wouldn't recommend living off chicken because it doesn't have the same micronutrient profile as beef, but it can it can be it can be done. It's no problem. It's not an expensive diet to run if you food prep, but that's the case with most diets. If you food prep, it's not expensive. If you let someone else prepare your food for you, everything gets expensive. So how do you food prep? Is it the is your steak still hot when you're eating it? Like, how do you prepare it? So my excuse is being a European, I love cold food. So no, my uh, my my steak isn't hot. Um, so if I'm eating three steaks in a day, let's say, for example, breakfasts will be hot, lunches will be cold, and evening meals will be hot because I cook it at home. Um, I can walk over to City Super and buy pork belly or beef over there. That'll be hot. That's not too expensive. I can go down to Classified or any of the shops in the area and buy scrambled eggs, for example. That's going to be hot. Um, my my friend actually um, goes down to 7-Eleven with his Tupperware box and puts it in the microwave and he has hot steak. I love cold steak. I, I don't know why. Like putting cold steak and then putting more fat on top of it and salt, it just, it's something that it's, it's, I really enjoy. Um, but then I grew up eating cold cuts and, and cold food. I know in Asian society, especially, they don't like cold food. So, yeah, I, I can I, I can get it. But in, if you do a two meal a day approach, you just eat before you go to work. And when you come home from work, it's fine. In closing, what is an important lesson you've learned on your journey? This came about, and I don't know why this came into my head. This came about talking when I was doing some proactive therapy sessions because I was like, I need to, like, I'm really into like, helping people with their headspace as well and coaching. So I, I go through like counseling just to see what the process was about. And uh, we, we know, as with everything, you find some stuff, you go and it'll be, oh, I don't need this much. And then, uh, oh yeah, you find some stuff. And the interesting uh, thing that we, we, we got, you get to learn to listen to your internal chatter, right? Because your chatter will be like, um, why are you driven to do certain things? And there'll be a, there'll be a little dialogue, a monologue voice around it. And it's reframing it to being positive and going from oh you're not doing well enough to you're doing well keep going but you just keep going you know so um it's reframing some of the the things that you you have and i guess the lesson from all of this is that and like i, I use this analogy of my clients is that if you are eating four mcdonald's a day and then you take away one and put a whole food meal and you're having three McDonald's a day and a whole food meal, you're making progress. So all you need to do is just put one foot in front of the other. You are making progress. Don't beat yourself up about it. Just keep going. You know, I get some clients, oh, I couldn't commit to just doing that for 30 days. Just commit to doing it one meal a day for 30 days. Like you don't have the perf perfection is the opposite of progress sometimes. So, or, you know, deteriorates from progress. So just be honest with yourself do what you can do and just put one foot in front of the other because I've been trying to put one foot in front of the other for 10 years and I'm still not where I need to be, right? So what are you struggling with? My current ones are I eat, surprise, surprise, too much protein relative to my physiological needs. So anything above your physiological needs gets um, turned into glucose and then you need to inject insulin based off those glucose. So I, my, my struggle is that I eat too much protein and I'm not consistent with my meal timings. Um, and I know people are like, oh yeah, but you know, but they actually make, they're the two 
biggest things that I said that you need to sort out with your diabetes. And sometimes I don't obey the, the golden rules of diabetes, which is eat the same amount of food at the same times. You know, so for people like, oh, that's not that big of a deal. It's a really big deal for diabetics. So um, I fall into the trap of going because I know so much about diabetes. It's like, you know, I know that I need to eat 275 grams for five units or whatever the case may be. Um, and I've been religious on it since like, since I went, since Boxing Day, I woke up feeling awful. And I've just been back to the, the old super strict teetotal meat. But I was just like to myself, why can't I just, what, like, the, I'll, I'll cut up a bit of steak and it'd be like 310. And I'd be like, oh, never mind, I'll, do it. I'll be 320. I'd just be like, yeah, but you know, this is going to throw out your medication ratios. Like, and I'll just, just, do it anyway so for me it's so for me my struggles are just 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 doing it sometimes like i i do it 80 percent or 85 or 90 percent but it's like just 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 do 100 percent, you know and i know people are like oh you don't beat yourself up, you're doing well enough but it's not that much more effort to go to make your life easier yeah so um, but again, like, you know, like uh, you can talk to you about, like, don't beat yourself up. It's, you know, it, it is what it is. Like, you know, we're, we're all here to learn and it's just understanding that, you know, we, that we just got to put, we just have to build momentum, which just comes from just doing it right one time. And that leads you learns to a second, least of things. You can't just be so and go, oh, I'm going to be doing this forever. You know, it's just momentum is what you need for long-term success. So just, just, just do it once. And then if you don't do it the second time, then do it once again. And eventually you do it twice. And then you can put a streak together of three and then you can put a streak together of four times in a row. Oh, that's great insight. And just on a side note, because I'm Asian and I like to eat rice, I wonder sometimes when you just eat a piece of steak, do you feel, is it filling? Does it feel enough? So when you first um, transition to carnivore diet, uh, you have a stomach capacity of X number of kilos, X number of liters. And I, I found that because basically if, if you look at a, a, a day's food in days gone by, you know, you'd have three to 400 grams of lean meat and then three to 400 grams of vegetables. So, you know, you've got 800 again, then 800 again for lunch. So that's 16, one, 1. 1.6 kilos. I go home, make a big salad. Uh, you know, another two kilo salad or one point and a half kilo salad. So you're looking at three to three and a half kilos of food a day. Some people can process up to like six pounds of food a day. And now when I transition to the carnivore diet, because everything's so cal calorie dense and nutrient dense, I can eat some days only 750 grams of food, like 800 grams of food and be completely satiated off that. So like I, I, I give anyone the challenge, go to City Super, buy their slow cooked pork belly and just see how much you can eat in one sitting like it's uh, sometimes i get to like 300 grams and I, and I need to die like i'm so like so full from it so rich so but the problem is when you first transition is you're used to a certain level of gastric filling after a meal it's a reference point for how much you usually eat so there's like a black hole in you when you first transition to carnivore diet until your stomach shrinks how long does that take Oh, anyone's guess like it can be it can be three four six eight weeks but you know like I, I did feel that it was a good it was a good six to eight weeks before I was 
one comfortable going, where's the rest of the food gone on this plate? And two, um, before I didn't have that emptiness inside my stomach. Final question. What is your idea of wellness? My idea of wellness. Oh, that's a great question. I was right. I was writing this up for my education platform recently and it's having the freedom not restriction based on your lifestyle so it's having the freedom to be able to do whatever you want to 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 do in in regard so not having any pain not having any discomfort not um all of those things where you you know you're not there's no obvious signs of of, of not wellness but then also having the capacity and the freedom to go and walk up a hill or to go and to, to go and hang out with friends, to go and jump in on a workout and not having any, you know, barriers to that. And this also comes with the association with food because I would say my physical wellness is, is better than my mental wellness when it comes to my relationship with food because whether we like it or not, I am on an extreme diet. It's a very, very polarizing diet and that's not the case for everyone. Um, and I do feel bad about myself at certain times, much better than I used to be when I do deviate from my optimal meal plan. So that isn't freedom, you know, so there is a negative implication to there's like a crossroads between mental health and physical health here with me. So uh, but I know that my long term mental health is much better on this way. So it's just a a fork in the road essentially right a decision i have to make so for me um wellness is is, is all of the, the the physical attributes of being physically well as well as being mentally well and then having the freedom and flexibility to do whatever you want to do so jay where can people find you and can you tell us about the project that you're working on right now Okay, so if you want to find me in person, I'll be at one of the two uh, ATP, uh, currently our two personal training studios. We have one in Hong Kong, one in Singapore. Um, and be, be, when we could fly and the world was open, I would be on a rotation of just flying back and forth between the two of them, educating the staff. Um, I'm planning on relocating full-time to the Singapore office. So we'll see if that goes through. When this comes out, I'll be like, oh, well, that worked or that didn't work. Um, so you can find me in person there. Um, the, the project I'm working on is I want to change the, I want to raise the standards of personal training. I don't think the level of personal training standards is acceptable. So I'm in the middle of creating the second phase of my our company's education platform, which is, in my opinion, from what I've seen, uh, the most detailed onboarding education platform that you can have when you join a company. There's, there's definitely brilliant education resources that are private that you can go and do in your own time. And, and, and you know, I've done that. And they're wonderful. But as a mandatory, if you come to work at ATP, you have to do multiple hours a day you know for the whole of the project you're looking at three to five hours a day of education for 12 weeks before you can start to train our clients at the company so i want to put this minimum standard of excellence in across the industry um, and if it starts with us and if we become market leaders then everyone will have to follow and personally, if you want to see me rant about a few things, you can find me on my Instagram, which is diabetic.carnivore. 
um but yeah that'll be everything from what i'm listening to to what i'm eating to what i'm lifting it's a bit of a mixed bag on there but it's good fun come in brilliant thank you so much jay and do you have any closing thoughts or anything else you want to mention that i've missed no i I, we've we've been through a lot it's been an absolute great conversation um i i I wish i had one of these amazing sign-offs that i could just you know like would be like a signature uh but i don't just keep it classy and uh yeah thank you for listening thank you so much the show notes of this episode are on my website www.interested.blog and if you enjoy this podcast share it with a friend